Hello, my name's Jeff Nichols. I'm the writer and director of Loving. Thanks for watching. Leading into this first scene, I'll just start talking about it. I'm really proud of it. This entire thing was inspired by a documentary that was on HBO called The Loving Story by Nancy Bursky. And when I first started thinking about a narrative version of this film, and I started doing all of my research, there were a lot of details about kind of the first section of the story, the Loving's marriage and arrest and eventual exile. But I still didn't know how to actually start the film. Richard and Mildred grew up almost literally across the street from one another in this really small community called Central Point in Virginia. And because of that, I didn't know where to start the film, you know. I was thinking, well, should I have them as kids, see each other or something? And that just felt really terrible. And when I started looking into my research and looking at birth dates of their children, I realized that Mildred was pregnant when she was arrested and pregnant when they got married. This isn't a detail that was revealed in the documentary. And I found that pretty fascinating. And I just thought, well, at some point she had to tell him. And what was that like? And just from looking at Richard and all of this archival footage we had access to, I thought Richard would probably be the kind of guy that would be happy about the news. And, uh, and that's where I got this scene. Because it, it kind of tells you everything about where, where they've been previously, where they're at right now, and kind of where they're going, you know. You just see that they're in love, and that's kind of the simplicity of it. So these drag race scenes, they are all based on fact. You know, I don't know about the particular circumstances, but it's pretty well known that Richard was part of a drag race team. He did not race the car. There was actually an article in Ebony about them that really wasn't about the Loving's case or their interracial marriage. It was really just about how good their race team was. So apparently they, they did pretty well. There it goes. Richard and Raymond Green, who's the character you see standing next to him here, apparently they would tear down this car every weekend and build it back up and got pretty good at it. So that's Will Dalton and Chris Green. Will Dalton is an actor we found in, a, in our regional casting calls in Virginia. And uh, I think he's a really powerful young actor. Uh, you'll get to see more of him later on in the film and maybe understand what I'm talking about. Oh, I, that shot of the young man playing guitar in the center of frame. I have to mention, that's Benjamin Booker. I don't know if you know his music, but if you don't, go find it. He's based out of New Orleans and he's a, he's a pretty amazing musician. And he was very nice to come play in this scene for us. Just to talk about kind of the context of everything here, these are all supposed to be scenes of 
the Lovings in Central Point. And Central Point was a really unique community, especially in the American South in the 50s and 60s. It was unique because it had a history of racial mingling that went back decades. There were relationships between whites, blacks, Native Americans. There was a big Rappahannock population there. And uh, so much so that the one road that kind of goes through the middle of the community is called Passing Road. And passing is a term that they would use for people who could pass as white because they were so light-skinned. So it was really important for us to kind of show the unique racial makeup of this place. So if you look at the, a lot of the extras and everyone else that populates the film, you'll, you'll see people that have a lighter skin and, and hopefully represent, you know, the, the composition of this very unique community. And, and the reason why it's important, not only because it's true, but it's important to Richard and Mildred, I think, because I genuinely believe they grew up in a place that allowed them to fall in love. You know, this whole idea of, of them getting married really it's not a it's not an act of defiance it's not a symbol they're not trying to prove a point to anyone I genuinely believe they loved each other and I think part of that's because they were allowed to grow up in a place where the people in their immediate vicinity accepted that for the most part and I know that might sound strange talking about a film that takes place in the American South in the late 50s and 60s I'm gonna put the kitchen back, right back here. Richard, stop this. I don't know what you're saying. I bought it. So this field that we're in right now is actually about three minutes from the home that Richard and Mildred ended up living in when they, they came back to Virginia to live in hiding. So all these locations that you're seeing are in and around the real places that these situations took place. We were based as a production out of Richmond, Virginia, but all of these locations are about 30, 45 minutes away from Richmond. Nailed it. Yes? I should talk about Ruth. You know, she was the first person we auditioned for this role. My casting director, Francine Maisler, had auditions for us on a trip to L.A. that I had had. And um, Ruth was the first person to walk in the door. My immediate reaction, because I wasn't familiar with Ruth or her work, was that she was too short. Because Mildred Loving is actually, uh, she was actually quite tall. Uh, they called her String Bean, or Bean. And... Um, and luckily, though, Ruth sat down, and she was nervous, and I was nervous. I get nervous for actors when they audition. And so we didn't talk very much, and she just launched into the scenes. And you could tell she had been doing exactly what I'd been doing, which is pouring over this archival footage of Mildred Loving. She had the posture. She held her mouth in a very certain way. And, of course, she had this voice. So um, my issues with her height quickly went out the window. And uh, it was pretty undeniable that we were looking at, at Mildred Loving. And uh, it wasn't until after she finished her audition that we started talking that I realized she was Irish. It's a really interesting accent to have come out of that, uh, that person. But uh, 
But it didn't matter because she was already Mildred Loving in my mind. Thank you, Ms. Lola. We'll see you soon. So Lola, the woman that plays... Uh, the, the woman that's Richard's mother is played by Sharon Blackwood. She's an actress out of Georgia. And, you know, it was really important for us to try and find actors that resembled the real people when we had examples of them. Um, you know, when I sit down to write, I write for specific actors. You know, I, I made this film Mud that I wrote specifically for Matthew McConaughey. I write a lot of parts for Michael Shannon specifically and a lot of other actors. When I was writing... These scenes, I was thinking about the real people because I had all of this imagery of them from the documentary, from the archival footage, from photographs. And so uh, if you go watch the documentary and you look at the images of Richard's mother and you look at Sharon Blackwood, um, it's strikingly similar. And uh, luckily Sharon let us dress her her way, way down (laughs) in order to kind of get there. But I'm really proud actually of how much a lot of these people resemble the, the real people. You need a witness? Uh, you want to ask your dad to come up there with us? We're just going to take Mildred up to D.C. to get married. Straight bang. Don't make no damn sense. Now, you'd be fine living in the house. No wife, just fine. You don't need no wife for that. She gonna be your girl. Why, why people wanna get mad? It don't make no sense, man. So, this idea that they had to go up to D.C. to get married, I think it's something Richard was very aware of. But it brings up this much bigger question of what they, what were they aware of? With hindsight, we have to say, surely they knew that they were just stepping in to a storm of events. But... There's a line that's coming soon from Mildred that she said repeatedly in the archival footage about, well, Richard just said there was less red tape in Washington. So it's my belief that, you know, Richard had a certainly an idea that they wouldn't be able to legally be married in Virginia or in their hometown, but I think he just saw D.C. as a, a solution. Well, I'll just go up there and get married. He certainly didn't understand the intricacies of of the law, which specifically stated if you... If you leave the state of Virginia to get married and willfully return into the state of Virginia knowing that you've broken the law by by married interracially, then you've broken the law. I doubt he understood the intricacies of that particular law. But it's important to, to kind of think about where they both are. Richard was older than Mildred at the time, and and I think Mildred really was just kind of caught up in the in the moment. And I and I pulled all of that from, or that idea from all of this footage that we had of her, all of these conversations that she she gives in this archival footage. She really genuinely seemed to think Washington and the trip to Washington was just a, a formality. You know us, Purdy. So this is back in Mildred's parents' house, the Jeters. And what you think, Bo? This is a, a home 
an old home that we found on a beautiful plantation uh, outside of Richmond. And it was actually uh, the site of the first Thanksgiving in the United States. Uh, it's just some trivia for you. But uh, they were very nice to us to, to let us come in and, and film at this home on the property. So obviously you're starting to see a, a routine of this brick lane that's gonna be repeated throughout the film. One of the first things we had Joel do when preparing for the role is, is take brick lane classes. And there was a great high school program in Richmond that uh, would actually teach it as a trade skill. And there were some really great guys there that, uh, that showed Joel how to do it. I think he actually learned it well enough to he told me he went back to Australia and built a pizza oven. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea if that's true. I know this might seem like a kind of random little bubble in the film, but it was important for me to have a few scenes that just, you know, represented their day-to-day -day life really before the storm hit, uh, which will happen here in a little bit. But it, this is also, this scene is, is based on some researchable fact. The, the sheriff's deputies and, and the sheriff tried to come by and arrest the Lovings during the day, but Richard was always at work or away, and they really wanted to, I think, catch them I didn't have in the act, as it were, and, and catch them in bed together, which is why they eventually came in the middle of the night. One of the main reasons I put this scene here is because it was spoken a lot about the fact that Richard hung his marriage certificate on the wall, which is kind of an odd thing to do. I, I don't have my marriage certificate on the wall. And I think, you know, and this is just my opinion, but I imagined one reason why he did that it was probably because he heard about people poking around and he was like, well, no, this is my legal document. So if they ever come in, you know, and question me, I can just point to it. It'll be right there. Uh, again, I don't know if that's why he did it, but we know that he did it in terms of uh, hanging the marriage license. Yeah, don't make much difference. But which one faster? Well, it depends on who built it. That's what I said. How much money you win with that car? Well, why are you asking him about his money? You don't have to answer and That's me. Terry Abney. She's the actress that plays Garnett. And Garnett was a really important person in Mildred's life. In fact, they lived next to each other until their death. I mean, Garnett, I believe, passed away first. But uh, it's an important relationship to start to establish because one of the main reasons Mildred really needs to move back to Virginia after they are put in exile it's because of this relationship she has with her family. Um, she certainly had a really close relationship with her parents, but I, I kind of zeroed in on this relationship with her family, with her sister. So this event is pretty well documented. Um, you have the Lovings and archival footage recounting the event several times. And this is the first time we see Sheriff Garnet Brooks. He's an interesting figure, you know. He has quotes later in his life about 
this moment, he talks about that he was, you know, just doing his job and enforcing a warrant, one of which is quoted later in the film here about God made a robin a robin and a sparrow a sparrow. Uh, apparently it was something that he said quite frequently. So beyond the fact that he might have just been doing his job, I think you know that in his heart he truly disagreed with the situation that the Lovings were in. In here! What you doing in that bed, boy? Richard! What you doing in bed with that woman? I'm his wife. That's no good here. And that's Martin Chakas, who's a really extraordinary actor. Yet another foreigner I have playing an actor in the South, uh, which I know some people question. But the main reason I cast him was because when I spoke to him about the part, he said something kind of fascinating. He was talking about this arrest and everything else, and he said, you know, I think Sheriff Brooks sees them kind of as children that have made a mistake. And he's going in to say, okay, you're done. You've had your fun. Now get out of the bed. This is reality. And it was kind of an eerie approach to that character, but one that I found very interesting. He goes in there. It's all right. Come on. It's okay. So this is not the actual jail that they were held in. The interior of the actual jail that they were held in, Bowling Green, was just too small for us to shoot in. And we had to find a, an interior jail site in a neighboring county to shoot in. But the exterior that you're about to see here in this next shot, so that is the actual Bowling Green courthouse and jail over in the back right corner. And there are a lot of other scenes later on in the film that you'll see. Those places still exist and have been actually very beautifully preserved. The, the courthouse is still in use, so. Richard Lovin? Yeah. Made bail. Bean. Richard? Yeah. Hold down. What about her? Wait, wait, wait. Wait! Don't pull me again. This really begins just the grinding down on Richard Loving's character. It's just inability to protest and fight back, you know? There's an amazing quote in the archival footage, which I don't think made it into the documentary was from the outtakes of it. But Richard Loving's recounting, you know, getting arrested, and the person interviewing him in the documentary says, you know, you're a big guy. Uh, well, did you ever think about resisting or, or fighting back? And he literally looked at her like she was crazy. And he just said, no, you know, I go with the law. Uh, you, know, you, 
you just go with the law. And I think, you know, that's the difference between movies and, and reality. Richard Loving kind of, as simplistic as he may be, had, had a firm understanding that he's not going to resist this sheriff. He'll get his head split open, you know. And, you know, you don't, you don't fight the, the police officers. It seems like he just assumed that was a, a ridiculous response. Just rest. Rest, rest. So now Richard's mother really was a midwife. And I just, I have no idea how involved Richard was in, in all this, but it comes back to play later when Mildred is having her own baby. So I, I thought it would be interesting to have him somewhat involved, meaning he grew up in a home where this event happened a lot and he was always called upon to help fetch this or do that. This scene's directly inspired by something in the documentary. You know, they're asking Richard in the documentary footage how, you know, why they came to arrest him. And he says, I don't know, but somebody talked. Which really, you know, it just kind of, again, leads to this idea that they were just constantly surrounded by the threat of something. It doesn't always have a face or a name, but... That's what the Jim Crow South did, I think, to so many people, especially in the black community. It, it just set them under this constant threat of danger and insecurity. And it's just something they had to live with kind of day in and day out. And what I find fascinating about this story is here you have a white character who conceivably could be part of, you know, whatever white privilege might exist in the white community of the South, but he... He's not. He's drawn into this other situation, and and we have to see that point of view shared across multiple communities, and I, I find that interesting. So this fact, so Richard was allowed to be bailed out the next day, but they kept Mildred for a longer period of time. There are different accounts. Some say nine to 10 days, some say 15 days. I leave in the film that period of time a little bit amorphous. Point being, she was just in there longer than he was, which was just simply unfair. I'll get a lawyer. You can. And this begins Richard's struggle with, you know, the legal system. That's the first mention of a lawyer, which he tries to throw at that clerk as something that almost as a dare. And the clerk calls his bluff. He's obviously not comfortable in this situation or with these details. So I have no idea if anything like this ever happened. Probably not. But this scene does a, a few important things for us narratively. Everything that I said about the kind of racial makeup and the unique quality of Central Point 
it was very hard to get that across to the audience. I'm not a writer that appreciates exposition very much, but I felt like this could be an interesting opportunity to start to to explain that. But he also explains another point about Richard and his upbringing that I find really, really interesting, which is that Richard's father worked for a black man in the timber industry. And you have to think, you know, that had a tremendous impact on the way he viewed the world in a really beautiful way to see that his father's livelihood was provided by you know, the entrepreneurship of a black man. That had to have an impact on him. And, and it starts to, again, reinforce this idea that he genuinely thought he could fall in love with this woman. It was just kind of baked into his his nature. Daddy worked for a nigga, didn't he? Running timber. I'm sorry for it. Not really him. All y'all over there in Central Point don't know from down, all mixed up. Port Cherokee. But also there's the subtext of this scene. Maybe it's not that that sub, but Blood don't know what it wants to be. You have Richard You just got born in the wrong. So place. desperately wanting to protest and say that this isn't fair. But he, he just... You got to think it was fair. He can never... He, he can't even make eye contact with the sheriff because he just understands the situation. He tries to make eye contact and the sheriff isn't looking at him. But as soon as the sheriff looks back to him, he looks back down because he won't be caught eyeballing him. That's God's law. Because if you just look at Richard's trajectory, you know, I think it is just this kind of consistent emasculation that's happening. All he wants to do is work hard, provide for his family, create a home for his family. And he's not allowed to do that. And these are all building blocks for a scene that comes later in the film where he kind of reaches his breaking point in terms of that feeling. But I was also just drawn by the idea that She's right there. She's right there in this jail. And again, that's the real jail there in Bowling Green. But he can't go get her and how hard that must have been. So I need to actually make a correction here. The line that's coming up, Mildred said this actually happened, but she attributed it to the jailer, not to Sheriff Brooks. So this is a mistake I made by attributing it to Sheriff Brooks. I just thought because he comes up later, I just wanted more screen time for him as a character. I should put you in with her tonight.
Your daddy posted your mail. This is her father, The Oliver, who went by the name Jake, and it's played by Christopher Mann, just a fantastic actor we were lucky to find. Because I don't give him a whole lot to do in the film, but when he's there, he's doing something really good, in my opinion. So again, now this road we're on is a road in Central Point actually he heading right out of the county into King and Queen County. Um, so all all these environments are places that, that they would have they would have been around. Where's Richard? He moved his things out. We're talking about Virginia, I should say thank you to the Virginia Film Commission, Andy and Don and everybody there were just amazingly helpful to us uh, in terms of finding these locations, getting access to these locations. They just provided a lot of support for us, so thank you. So just kind of a nerdy director technical thing. This scene coming up, it's a situation where you just kind of stumble into something really, really interesting. Richard's about to sneak into this house and I knew that I wanted to do this scene in one take. I couldn't tell you why. It just made sense that I wanted them together in a two shot and I wanted to do it all in one take. But when we were there that evening, this thing happened where they're sitting on the bed and we're looking at the lighting, which is primarily through this window off to the right that you see. And uh, because the walls um, and all of the archival footage and everything else we saw, they were always very sparse. You know, they just didn't have as much kind of junk and stuff as people have these days. So the walls are really sparse. And so we had this kind of plain, you know, background with this very strong light off of the right of screen. And originally when we first staged this scene, we had them more up against the window just because it was a more interesting background. But then we just saw if we, if we moved them just over to the right a little bit and put them against this white wall, then both of their faces go dark. Okay. And you just can't even, there's no separation there. It's pretty obvious, but you know, in the moment, um, we were pretty impressed by it. It ends up looking like a like a roar shock or something. It's a just a cool thing that happens sometimes. Open to it on a film set. So I spoke about Ruth. I'll speak about Joel. Joel and I met and first worked together on a film called Midnight Special. It's the film I made before this one. And I'd already had Ruth in mind for the casting. Um, 
but I hadn't found Richard yet. And, and I was just kind of getting to know Joel and, and knew that he, he had a faint resemblance to, to Richard Loving, but I kind of wanted to get to know him and work with him. So in the middle of Midnight Special, it just really started to make sense to me. Um, you know, if you kind of squinted one eye, thought about him losing a little weight, bleaching his hair blonde and putting a little bit of male, male pattern baldness into his haircut, that he could actually look like Richard Loving, also with some bad teeth. But uh, also in Midnight Special, he plays a Texas State Trooper. And I just feel like he nailed that accent. And so all those things kind of combined to make me make me know that, that Joel was the perfect person for this part. And he really is a great actor. But he is not a fan of your particular situation. Lucky to have him. If you all please. Uh, this is Bill Camp, um, another great actor that I first worked with in Midnight Special. A lot of more people are going to know who he is because by the time you're watching this, the night of on HBO will have played a lot. Um, I first saw him in my friend Craig Zobel's film Compliance. But he's one of these actors that just, he just shows up and knocks it out of the park. He makes my job very easy and makes me look very, very good. When I was writing this role, um, I actually, I actually was thinking about Bill Camp. So just some context and some commentary on Frank Beasley, the character that he's playing. So Frank Beasley was, you know, kind of the main lawyer in Bowling Green. Uh, Joe, you know, Joe's character wasn't lying when he said, he hired the best best lawyer in the county. That was understood to be true, mainly because Beasley had a, a relationship with Judge Bazile, the, the local judge there in Bowling Green. The story goes that Bazile was actually going to be dismissed from his seat in the court, and Frank Beasley went and, and testified on his behalf. So from that point on, uh, Frank Beasley pretty much had... Uh, um, got what he wanted uh, a lot of times out of out of Judge Bazile's court. Try not to talk unless he directly asks you a question which he won't. I got that information from a, a book called Virginia Hasn't Always Been for Lovers. It's a book that I use for a lot of supporting information. It's mostly about anti-miscegenation laws and, and their history in this country and the court case. But, uh, but I found it to be a very helpful book by Phyllis Newbeck. ...out of the state of Virginia for the purpose of being married in the District of Columbia on June 2nd, 1958, and afterwards returned to and resided in... So this dialogue was taken directly from the court record. ...state of Virginia, cohabitating as man and wife against the peace and dignity of the Commonwealth. That line always gets me, against the peace and dignity of the Commonwealth. It's just kind of a shameful thing to have in legal language. Guilty. Guilty. The court does accept. Now, these court proceedings probably would have been a little bit different the way they were arraigned and everything else. I've kind of combined things for narrative efficiency. It probably would have been a little bit more back and forth, a couple more trips to the court. Upon the provision that both the accused leave Caroline County in the state of Virginia at once. This actor's David Jensen. He was also in my film Midnight Special. And he also has a striking resemblance to the real Judge Bazile. Go Google Judge Bazile right now, and a Grey Valette photograph will show up. And I swear they look very, very similar. You are released from custody, so you're going. So I want to talk about Mildred real fast. You know, up to this point in the film, 
Richard's really been kind of the driving force in this couple, mainly because also Mildred's just been in, in jail so much. But but I think more than that, you know, Richard was the older of the two. Richard was the one that said, let's let's get married. Let's go to D.C. I'm going to get us a lawyer. This is, you know, this, we're going to work this out. And Mildred was just kind of going with all that. But this is the beginning of, I think, Mildred's maturation into a woman and to a person that eventually is going to start to manifest their destiny in terms of the court case and their ability to finally get home. I think you start to see this transition in her character from this young girl that's just happy to be there to this woman now that is having to deal with some very heavy things. Of course, the beginning of which is separating herself from her family. I mean, just think, she's pregnant. She's 19 years old. She's never been you know, away from her family for any significant le length of time. I knew what she was doing and now she's being forced to leave for, as you far as she knows it, a period of 25 years. It's a, it's a, it's an, it's a lot of weight, I would think, on this woman's shoulders. Bing. Now, again, I don't know in real life Mildred's sister Garnet, her reaction to all of this. This is just something I, I inferred, you know. It just had to be very difficult. And I didn't know if she blamed Richard or not, but it seemed to make sense to me. shot coming up. I dreamed about this shot for a long time. And maybe this is why people think my movies are slow, but it was just important to me that you have this final moment of them kind of saying goodbye to the country. This is kind of the last green thing you see for a while. And we found this beautiful field with these soybeans and I just wanted to sit with them for a second. And this idea that everything's quiet for a moment, and then as soon as she cracks this window, we're no longer in the country anymore, and all these sounds and all these kind of new images kind of flood in. And now very specifically, they're in D.C., in this community, and it's supposed to look very different than the community um, in Central Point. And again, I'm talking about racial makeup here. Um, these were these were differences, and I don't think it's that Mildred is intimidated by um, that racial makeup. I think she's just completely scared of this new situation. And it's a line that you'll hear later in the film from from Mildred, but it's something she said uh, in the documentary as well talking about there was no grass to run in, just kind of talking about how hard it was being in, in the city versus the country. It's just not something she was used to. But again now, if you start to look at even the shot composition, that balance between shots of Richard 
to shots of Mildred, she's starting to um, command the screen a little bit more. Um, and this period in DC very much becomes about Mildred's depression, this this depressed state that she she moves into. Richard is just going to work every day. Um, Come on in, let me show you the house. But we start to stay with Mildred a lot more. So now this is supposed to be DC. This is actually a neighborhood in uh, in Richmond, Virginia, that stood in quite well for for downtown DC in the period. I mean, you know, our production design department did did a lot here, but not that much. You know, um, these these row houses were pretty well uh, intact and, and looking like this today. Although they're starting to all be remodeled. So I think if you went back today, they might all be, I don't know, remodeled townhomes at this point. My wife's mother lives out in the country. And whenever she comes to stay with us in Austin, she always talks about how she can't sleep because it's so loud, which never made sense to me. You know, it's not like we live in a really loud neighborhood, but it's because she's used to living in the country and everything being so quiet. And that's where I got that idea for that scene. Just the sounds and things must have been a constant reminder of where she was. I'll be back by dinner. It's an interesting piece of score. So I've, I worked with my composer, David Wingo, who's worked with me since Take Shelter, so on four of my films now. This is a piece he came up with, and he came up with all of the score, but I wouldn't have thought I was gonna have a piece of music like this in the film, but it, but it worked. Uh, it worked. I'm most pleased though with his theme, which you'll hear come back up throughout the film. I, I think it's really gorgeous. So this is a supermarket we found uh, that to this day, if you walked in, looks like this. The tile on the floor, the coolers, uh, you know, we brought in some things for the shelves, but even that weight in the back was already there and the, and the things above the aisles. You know, Virginia really was the best place to shoot this film. Um, we just, our location manager, Colleen Gibbons, she just found, you know, she found some of the greatest places. So this is leading to a part of the film that I have to kind of correct the, the factual record. So it is true that Richard and Mildred returned to Virginia and were rearrested. But it wasn't when she returned uh, to give birth, though I do believe she did return to give birth. 
I don't have exact proof of it, uh, but it's intimated by by a few people. Um, so in real life, they returned for an Easter weekend and were rearrested. But again, for narrative efficiency, I, I tried to to combine those those two things into one: the birth and the, the rearrest. It certainly makes it fairly harrowing. Um, but I, I really wanted to try to stay truthful to, to things I could prove, you know, and not create things just for the sake of drama. Um, and this kind of passed my litmus test in terms of, well, this thing happened and this thing happened. I'm just going to put them together. But I think there were probably a lot of times, and this is intimated by their daughter Peggy in the in the documentary that they snuck back into Virginia together um, I just wanted a moment that was kind of representative of all that and that's where all this whole sequence kind of comes from it's kind of one of my favorite shots in the film we just stuck a camera pointed out the back window and it doesn't really make sense until this other car passes but it's just such a such a weird way to start a driving scene looking through the back window but it said a lot to me because he's just looking over his shoulder. There it is. I just think it's a cool shot. So, uh, I have to give credit to Alana Miller. He He's the actor playing Raymond. And he's a great actor. As soon as I watched his audition, I knew we had the right, the right guy, you know, for the role. But he's not the best at driving these cars. Now I couldn't drive these cars either. So uh, most of them shifted on on the dash, you know, three on the tree. And poor Alano, I had him have to drive. Um, his character always drives really fast. He actually makes a point of it later on. Um, but not only drive, but uh, pull this big U-turn and then uh, and then drive and come to this kind of screeching stop right on a really specific mark. I think we actually had a stunt guy do that U-turn. But here, that's Alano. <laughs> but he got it. He nailed it. It was perfect. They are not the easiest cars to drive. So if you look at that jacket he's wearing, that jacket is almost identical to something he wears in the documentary. And Aaron Binnick, who is our costume designer who worked with me on Midnight Special, really just throughout the entire film, uh, if you care to hold you know, the documentary up to the film, you're just gonna find constant examples um, of Aaron either going out and finding clothing that matched or making clothing that matched. There's a jacket that Mildred wears when she exits the state, Virginia State Supreme Court that I believe Aaron made in order to, to match what, what we had. And, you know, sure, maybe, maybe there are a ton of people that can watch this movie and, and never care about those things, but it, it was important for us. It, it just seemed um, to be representative of a, of a larger approach in terms of 
take as much information as we possibly had access to um, in terms of story, but also in terms of, of detail and anywhere that we could try and make it represent what we had proof of. And, you know, it's hard to watch this scene and not talk about Michael Roy, my gaffer. I'll brag on Adam Stone, my cinematographer, later. But Michael Roy has been working with us since Take Shelter, so on four films now. And if you just look at the way this scene is lit, I buy it. I 100% buy it. It feels like the lamps that are on in the room. But it is this just uh, these really beautiful pockets of light and dark spaces. I mean, it just looks like painting. And yes, we'll give some credit to Adam Stone, my cinematographer. Adam's my buddy. We've we've shot all five of my films together. But I feel like I feel like I really want to give Michael Roy a high five on that one. So if you look at the the trees in this, so fall has started, leading into winter. It was really important to me when I started to lay out the narrative of this that that I not be too concerned with just dates, specifically, like there would never be a Chiron on the bottom of the screen that says, now you're in, you know, the fall of 1958 and spring of 1963. I, I knew I wasn't going to do that, but what I felt like was important was to constantly be reminded of this, that time is, is slipping by. And I thought since Richard Mildred come from such a rural place, a place kind of steeped in agriculture, it would make sense to build out seasons so that you you have summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring. Because I think one of the biggest crimes being committed against Richard and Mildred is time. They're being robbed of time. And so I just wanted the audience to feel feel time slipping by, which is a really cool idea but it's really hard to pull off on an on a independent film production. So we straddled our time, our shooting time from the beginning of September into November. So we actually had kind of the tail end of summer and, and green crops. And then we would have, you know, a good representation of fall and then a fairly good representation of winter by the end of the shoot. But it made for a, a really insane schedule, which my assistant director, Cass Donovan, beautifully manipulated in that as cutest baby in the world. You know, you found yourself going back to locations several times at, at different seasons, which is really hard, you know. Usually you want to go into a location, shoot everything that you have there, and then leave it be and let the poor people that live there or <laughs> are involved with that location have it back. But that wasn't the case for us. It was really important to to have these different seasonal scenes. You may not even fully notice it when watching the movie, but I, I think you feel it. So again, this is representative of, of something that, that did happen, just not in this particular context. They were rearrested. It's a great line in the documentary. 
Mildred just says, they got us again. But I particularly love Joel's performance here. And Martin's. And the deputy in the background is my friend Michael Abbott Jr. He's a great actor. He was in my first film, Shocking Stories. He had a small part in Mud. And I'm pleased to say he just uh, got the lead role in a, a film called In the Radiant City. And he does a great job in it. I go rest every soul in that house. These two actors, I just think they're doing a great job, Martin and Joel. Then you got Ruth, too. It's a pretty heartbreaking moment. Later, I'll talk about baby acting. We had some of the best baby acting in the world in this movie. Winterly Holland, who played Mildred's mother, another great actress, and she, I gave a lot of the emotional weight, you know, to the sister Garnet, which I'd mentioned before, and I think sometimes it was hard on Winterly to have to hold back, but what she does in the film, I think, is really good. So that's Michael Abbott Jr. that I mentioned. You'll go straight down. So to preface this scene a little bit, I'm not exactly sure that this is how this went down. A lot of this was taken from, from Phyllis Newbeck's book, Virginia Hasn't Always Been for Lovers. But because of the relationship that I described earlier between Frank Beasley, the lawyer, and Judge Bazile, we think that this, this is why this went down this way. We ask for leniency. I incorrectly told the Lovings it was fine for them to return home for the birth of their The child. judge wasn't willing to... It was my mistake. ...to tell Frank Beasley, no. I don't have total proof of this, you know, but but it made sense to me when explained in that book because they, they really could have been facing a year in the state penitentiary as a result of this. I mean, that's how big the stakes are. Thank you. I've never really put music like this in a movie before. You, you've already seen a music cue during the second scene in the film, which is the drag race scene with a, a great Richie Valens song called Ooh My Head, which is also 
recorded by Little Richard, I think, but I love the Richie Valens version. But here you've got a song that I first discovered from a friend of mine named Dr. Ike. He runs a, a music festival in New Orleans called the Ponderosa Stomp. And I worked with them and I heard this song for the first time, which is a song by William Bell called You Don't Miss Your Water. Otis Redding also does a great cover of it, but I really, you know, and I rarely say this about Otis Redding, so I, I really like the William Bell version. It just seems pretty mournful. Okay, baby acting real fast. So this baby is amazing. And whenever you take this baby out of his mother's arms, he just starts to cry. So we didn't pinch him, we didn't do anything bad, but his mother was actually hiding behind that refrigerator. And, uh, and as soon as you pick him up, it starts to cry. But then we had all these other babies that were the exact opposite, like this next baby you're about to see. That's great. That baby doesn't cry. Anybody can hold that baby. We got pretty good at, you know, reading the babies, but, but it was really thanks to our, our extras casting director. She just, I mean, she went above and beyond in finding all these kids. And I mean, look at this baby. This is me off screen saying, hey, baby, right when the doorbell rings. It's great baby acting. These are the things you think about when you're actually on set making a movie, not all the tremendously important other things that are going on. You just think about babies. Okay. So this is kind of huge because this is the first time there's kind of a separation between the way Mildred feels and the way her sister feels. You know, her sister's kind of moved on and is doing, doing stuff, but we find Mildred really in the grips of this depression, you know. Sue and Terry send their love. They just had a little girl, too. And I guess I should comment on the fact that we we essentially just jumped, what is it, about four years? Sydney, don't jump about that many house. minutes. They're big. Yeah. You see these children kind of as a, a time marker similar to the seasons, you know. You'll see Peggy grow up very quickly in the next couple scenes because it's it's this period that they were in D.C. where it took them through, I guess, probably around 1960 to around 1964. I have it all written down. It's just the, the, time, the timing's kind of tricky. I think this is a really beautiful moment on Ruth's face. This is when she just proves that she's one of the, one of the greatest actresses working. Good. How you doing? How is your sister? So if you think about it, you know, think about how much screen time Joel's had versus Mildred at this point. That's kind of what I meant by this kind of narrative shift that happens to where it becomes Mildred's story kind of for a moment. So this scene is based on multiple accounts from Mildred. Uh, she was there in the row house with her cousin and the DC marches were happening. And, uh, and her, her cousin recommended that she, she write Bobby Kennedy. 
coming in around the plaza surrounding Lincoln Memorial. We want first to go they say to over 100,000 people there. So when I was writing this, I had their address, the in real life, their address. And I had no idea. I, I think I searched on Google Maps how far they were from, you know, from the mall and from the place where the march would be taking place. And um, I had no idea if they would be close enough to actually hear it or see it. But obviously we were shooting all of this in Richmond, but I sent some friends of mine with a camera to go up to D.C. to shoot this rooftop shot that you'll see at the end of this scene. And they went to the real home and they got up on the roof and they shot this shot that you're about to see. And sure enough, you could see the Washington Monument. You could see the Capitol over there on the left of the screen. So that's the top of their actual row house in D.C. And very faintly, we put in the sound of the marches happening. That's how close she was, you know, but also that's how far away she was at the same time. I don't know. I just thought that was really neat. And this begins, really, her process of taking up the mantle for this fight. And it also begins the much more serious legal battle that would follow. All just with a letter. But it's important to note, too, the type of person Richard was in this archival footage that we had. You know, they're constantly being asked to kind of recount the story for the cameras. And it falls on Richard to do it this one time. And he's, he gets this part and he goes, well, you know, she wrote a letter. Um, who'd you write that letter to? And she's like, Robert Kennedy? He says, yeah, right, Robert Kennedy. So you have to understand, Richard just, he wasn't as aware of things as Mildred was, you know, as Mildred was really the instigator of, of all of this. I hope so. Now, why do you have a scene like this in a movie? What does this do? This scene doesn't forward the plot or do anything else, but through all this depression, through all this hardship, I just felt like we needed a scene that reminded everybody that this is what the movie's about. So now these, these children are growing, if you notice. You start to have more actors come in. And even though it happens off screen, this is the entrance of Nick Kroll as Bernard Cohen. Now, before anybody talks about Nick Kroll, go look at a picture of the real Bernard Cohen and look at a picture of Nick Kroll striking similarities. So I was in New Orleans working on Midnight Special and the Kroll show came on Comedy Central. And I started looking at this guy and I looked him up and, and I was struck by how similar they were. And then I really started looking into what he was up to. And he had just produced this film called Adult Beginners and you could tell he was just a really talented, intelligent guy. And then he came to Austin to meet with me and I find out that he actually went to Georgetown, which is where Bernard Cohen went. And his father, I think, went to Georgetown Law. It just seemed uh, uncanny how he matched up for this role. Okay, I'm based in Alexandria, but I have an office in D.C. if that is a concern. 
Well, as I said in my letter, we really can't afford a lawyer. So look at this camera move right here. I've never done anything like this in one of my films before. It's an unmotivated camera move combined with with score coming in. I typically would never do something like this, but so much of this film is about the inner workings of Mildred. Her world just changed. And I just wanted to highlight that by just a, a simple little camera move and a and the score coming in. I got a call from a lawyer today. So I'll start talking about Bernie Cohen for a little bit. I had the pleasure of getting to meet him before we made the film. But the majority of what I know about him, really, I, I kind of gleaned from, again, the archival footage. He's, he's a character. I think it's very telling that later in life he became a, a politician. Um, when you watch him in the, in the documentary footage, he's very aware he seems very aware that the cameras are on him, and he's and he's almost performing, even in the the kind of cadence in his voice. And I felt like that was probably true even for situations when the camera wasn't on him. You know, this this idea that he was a younger lawyer, the importance of this case, maybe um, maybe when he met the Lovings for the first time, he would be kind of on stage. Bernard Cohen. I'm in from Richmond. I talked to Jim about using his office for a few hours. Yes, Mr. Cohen. Do you know it? Down the hall? Yes. My clients are Mr. and Mrs. Love, and could you send them down when they arrive? Certainly. This little whole detail here, again, this also came, I think, from Newbeck's book. Just this idea that he didn't actually have an office in D.C. He just... Oh, no, that wasn't in Newbeck's book. I'm sorry. That, uh, that came from Phil Hirschkopf another conversation I had, who's the other lawyer of great importance that comes in a little bit later in the film. But it probably didn't happen like this. Um, this is me just having a little bit of fun introducing this character. But it's really just to imply that, you know, he's, uh, this is a big, big moment for him and, and he wants to make a good impression. And he doesn't. Mrs. Lowey. Because this is all recounted in the documentary, you know, that Bernie suggests they go back and get rearrested. Thank you for coming in today. So, as we discussed on the... You know, if we're just going to go back to kind of the, the dynamics within this marriage uh, for this couple, you know, now you, you really start to see the separation between how Mildred feels about the situation and what she thinks could come of it and Richard. Now, it's not, in my opinion, that Richard is, you know, just totally opposed to the idea. He just, he just doesn't think it'll bear any fruit, in my mind. He, the experience that he had with Frank Beasley, though Frank Beasley helped him, it didn't end very well. Can't you just go and speak to Judge Brazil? And this is really where Richard is enunciating how he feels about these things. It's just, he doesn't understand... If you let us back in the state... Why this has to be s such a big deal. They aren't hurting anybody. They aren't important enough to really, you know, matter. Just just let us go home to this little town that nobody cares about. Just let us, you know, just let us go there. We, we, won't, we won't bother anybody. 
state of Virginia. It's obviously a naive view. It's obviously a very simplistic view. But I think it's one that he held. And I can only imagine when he heard Supreme Court just how absurd that would feel to him. But then you have Mildred on the other side, who's ready. She understands the importance of this. The problem is that in order to appeal the judgment of conviction, we would have needed to do so within 60 days. Now, given that it's been five years since that conviction, we have a director, a way to get it back into the court. You know, it's tricky filming office scenes. We have a few of them in the film. And I have a somewhat There's just, you know, they're not that much fun. It's two people sitting across a desk from another person. But Spielberg does it really well, actually. And in Indiana Jones, also in Close Encounters, he does desk scenes pretty well. But what you really want is enough coverage in order to bounce around so that editorially the thing keeps moving so that you're right where you need to be when an actor has a reaction such as this. We aren't going to do that. Right. I can see how that was a mistake. I just think Nick does a great job. I understand. Look, I need to do some more thinking on this first issue, but bottom line is we are going to get you all some help. We appreciate you. We really do. So the scene coming up is one of my favorites for the transport department. Craig Furman was our transportation coordinator, and they all just did an amazing job pulling all these cars together. You'll see them walking here, and then, of course, there are these cars in the foreground, but this next shot over their shoulders, just look in the way background, we were able to find this sliver and just populate it with all these cars. We all stood around quite impressed by that fact. Good job, guys. I think this is kind of one of the most important lines of the film, from Mildred. If he gets us home, we'll take the hill. Well, you get what you pay for. It's just a reminder that that's all she wants, is just to get home. I showed this film, an early cut of it, to my friend Andrew Bajowski, who's another filmmaker, a great filmmaker. Afterward, he said, you know, I kind of wish their name was Richard and Mildred Home, because that's kind of what your movie's all about. It was a fair point. So this sequence here, I have no idea, if, you know, if Richard ever had any accidents on the job. This is just a fabrication of fiction. But what is documented is the fact that Donald, their, their middle child, was hit by a car when they were living in D.C. And this really was the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of Mildred's ability to put up with living in the city. It was just this kind of final thing that pushed her over the edge. I just, she just really didn't want her children being raised in the city. It's one of the few um, digitally composited shots in the film. We had a great company called The Mill uh, working with us for these effects, and I thought they did a really great job. We had a 
basically a plate shot of the boy running with no car. Then we had a plate shot of the car and, uh, and they put the two together just to give you that sense of backing up in your seat. This is a technical thing. So this shot and the next three shots were all done at the exact same time. So we could catch the light outside and the light inside and make it all match. So this is a three camera setup. We have a camera outside across the street, a camera here in the kitchen, and then a camera here in the den that we're about to cut to now. And uh, again, these are little technical things that nobody cares about other than filmmakers, but, uh, but I thought it was pretty cool that we could pull it off. Mildred? Up here. So again, I don't know exactly how this moment played out in their lives, but but she recounts in the documentary this situation of being hit by the car, and she even said he just scraped and bruised, laying up in the middle of the street is the way she said it. I know I'm talking about the documentary a lot, but it, you have to understand both Richard and Mildred had passed away. Um, their two oldest children had passed away by the time I was working on this. Peggy was the only surviving child, and it's just where I got all of my information from, you know. You don't need to have seen the documentary, I think, to watch this film, but they certainly do make really good companion pieces. We were shooting this DC stuff in about the middle of the shoot, but I remember very well filming this scene. We just... Um, I don't care what they do to us. It, it, there's just a time in a film shoot when everybody hits their stride. I won't raise my family here. Ruth was pretty much on her stride from day one, uh, as was Joel, but it was really this scene that I felt like we, we were really getting the movie, you know? We had our feet underneath us and everybody was operating at a, at a pretty high level. I'm real proud of this scene. You know, maybe there's a question of, and I don't know if other people feel this way, but how is Richard going to respond? Is he ever going to yell at her? Is he ever going to say, that's ridiculous? But um, but he doesn't. And, and, and you see this scene reflected later on in a scene where Richard says, I can take care of you, where he's in the position of weakness. And... Um, and in need of support. And that's really what the whole thing's about, is this marriage and how these two people Thank you, Miss over this course of time just depend on each other again and again and again and rely on each other to make it through. I'll see you tonight. So the sequence that we're about to lead into, it was inspired by interviews that, that Nancy Bruschi did with Robert Pratt. I reached out um, to Mr. Pratt, but he, he felt like he had kind of said all he needed to say in the documentary, so I didn't get any more information from him. 
but uh, but he's a really interesting guy, as I could judge from the documentary. And he later in life was was friends with Mildred, uh, but when he was younger, he lived at this boarding house um, that at times Richard and Mildred would would stay at. And I thought it would be an interesting point of view shift just very quickly um, to have this boy spying on them, especially because of the tension of them now moving back into Virginia. And, and I mean, right now they're technically living in hiding. They could be arrested right now. And you're not sure, is this boy going to tell on them or, you know, what his intentions are? It's kind of like a little mini short film lodged in the middle of the film. And we found this amazing house to shoot in. feels like it it expresses kind of the the potential danger of what could be going on here without having to you know come up with some manufactured harrowing moment and I apologize to Mr. Pratt I have never spoken to him so I, I imagine this isn't very accurate to his life but uh, I didn't know what the place looked like or anything but but that's what at least inspired it find out the boy just wanted to play with the other kids. My cousin has a house he might run But again, we now have a, a shift in this relationship. Richard now is, is quite tense, you know, and um, Mildred is as well, but they're... Um, now we're in a new phase of this relationship where they... Just a farmhouse out there. They're going to start living under this constant threat of danger. You know, a situation where kind of the best circumstance would be a police car coming to arrest them. The worst circumstance being something much, much more life-threatening or dangerous. The tricky part narratively, though, is that this back half of their life, there's just, there aren't that many concrete details about their day-to-day -day existence, you know, um, because <laughs> they were in hiding. Um, but also I just didn't have access to many people to find out what their day-to-day -day life was like. So I, I kind of, I shifted into an approach of, of really just trying to understand the, the psychology of what must have been going on, you know. I do think nature was very important uh, to Mildred, and I think the idea of home was very important. And that may be one of the prettiest shots in the film. It was very important, Mildred's arrival back into the country was something we felt uh, and, and really understood that regardless of that threat, this is important to her. It doesn't mean she's oblivious to the threat. It just means this is, uh, this is kind of nurturing her soul, I think. So we should talk about Adam Stone. He's my cinematographer and my friend, and he's worked on all five of my films. We shot this on film, 35 millimeter, with anamorphic lenses, cameras, and lenses from Panavision. Beautiful, beautiful equipment. You know, Adam just, he just has a knack for making things look the way I want them to look. 
his relationship with Michael Roy and our gaffer is it's it's progressed so much you know since Take Shelter I just uh, I can't say enough good things about him they're true blue collaborators so that letter is based on a real letter that uh, that Mildred wrote to Mr. Cohen because behind the scenes you know what was happening was he just couldn't find a way to get this court case back into the stream of the court because too much time had passed and all this is based on um based loosely on some fact uh, that he reached out to chet antio at georgetown his his old law professor and it just happened that the day he went by to visit uh, Phil Hirschkopf was there, and uh, and they met. Phil told me that this actually took place, I think, in like the the teacher's break room, not in Antio's office. But I felt like having it in their office just made more sense to me. Hello, Professor. Thanks for sometimes the reality of situations just um, you just need a little bit more of a shorthand sometimes. So, what's the problem? Well, I'm a bit stumped. But, you know, I, as important as, as Bernie Cohen was to this case, and which is undeniable, I think I think Phil Hirschkop, his co-counsel, was equally as important. Um, when you speak to Phil, it's pretty undeniable, uh, the brain power at work there. And um, I think he had a lot to do with, with really getting the... Getting this thing up on its feet and, and navigating it to the Supreme Court, with plenty of help from the, the ACLU, of course. But I think Phil's a very, very smart man who's gone on to be a very important civil rights attorney in this country. It's a very delicate situation because by appealing, you open up the possibility of sending them both to prison. I think, regardless, file the 1983 motion. Now, obviously, this is one of the few scenes that that shift away from the Loving's point of view. A lot's been written about the fact that I didn't make a courtroom drama, and that's because the Lovings weren't involved in these types of conversations, you know? Um, so I really tried to just put just enough of, of these conversations in the film so that you understood the progression of the court case, but that it didn't dominate the narrative. It's a really fascinating case, and you, you should look into it. Um, the, the way they navigated the state courts, the federal courts, to the Supreme Court, it, it, it's pretty great and well-documented in, in the documentary. Um, I'll call you on Monday. It just really didn't have anything to do with the day-to-day -day lives of the Lovings until, obviously, the decision. Um, you know, when I spoke to Phil Hirschkopf on the phone originally, I was trying to get personal details about them, uh, meaning the Lovings, and he said, look, you know, we only met them a, a dozen times. We It wasn't, uh, we weren't part of their day-to-day -day lives, and that just kind of, emboldened me when it came to my approach about sticking with the Loving's point of view. He said, you know, once they were married in D.C. and returned to the state of Virginia and were arrested, you know, they had the foundations they needed to try the case. It wasn't like they needed to depose witnesses or, or anything like that. So not that the case is just purely theoretical, but it, you know, it certainly was navigated to the Supreme Court somewhat separate from the Lovings themselves. Which, you know, speaks to a bigger idea of, of the Lovings just not being political creatures at all. Uh, which I think is really important. Hey, what is it? Oh, I got a message for you. What? I had a lawyer call 
Said he won't mute y'all. There's not a lot of times in this film where uh, there's humor, but Raymond. the times that they do show up, and this is one of them, what you, mean, you, um, like you really need it. It's like a breath of fresh air. What? So this next piece of dialogue that you're going to hear read aloud by Phil Hirschkopf's character, played by John Bass, who's awesome. God created the races, white, black. This is a, a written decision from Judge Bazile. Now, in in most movies, it would make sense to try and get this read in the judge's mouth and and him say it, and it'd be bombastic. But uh, I just don't think that happened. It was a it was a written you know judgment. I know it sounds strange. And so I had the idea to have Phil read it out loud because it's such an important document in this case because it really does reflect this just bastardized approach to race in our country specifically, but but everywhere. I mean, it's just such a just a disgusting idea that God separated the races and so he did not intend for the races to mix. It's just an absurd notion that is part of an archaic kind of belief system that in this case found its way into the laws you know these are slavery laws these are racist laws these anti-miscegenation laws that were on the books and Basile couldn't have you know more appropriately represented that ideology than in that response that he wrote which is why Phil Hirschkopf says it is uh, you know really good for them because he, he Basile just played right into kind of the racist um, origin of all these laws. And here's Mike Shannon. So <laughs> Mike is my friend and he's an actor that's been in all five of my films. Gray Vallette, Life Magazine, pleasure. What you got there, a small block? And I don't know a ton about Gravelette. I looked online. He was a tall man, I know that. He wore glasses like that. And that made me think of Mike. But I think Gray was actually from South Africa. And uh, Mike Shannon kept saying, I can do that. I can do a South African accent. And I was like, well, first off, I don't really know what Gravelette sounded like. And we're not going to explain that he's from South Africa. So that would just be extraordinarily bizarre if we had you speaking in a South African accent. But I think Mike was bummed that he didn't get to try. But the big point here is that Grey Vallette is this character that, from my estimation, could really ingratiate himself to people. And and I came to that conclusion just by looking at his photographs. He's taken some of the most beautiful photographs of the Lovings that, that exist. And they're so personal. They're so intimate. You just have to imagine that he was really great at, at walking into a situation and making people trust him and and um and like him and what a great opportunity for mike and i uh you know for mike to play this gregarious likable character you know most times i have him playing the father or the husband in these really dramatic situations and he's dealing with this really heavy stuff and uh and here he gets to be this kind of breath of levity that that shows up in in their lives even though there are some consequences for that. But you know, as much as this archival footage that I keep yeah. talking about, Gravelette's photos are equally as important, maybe more so in that 
they really do show an intimacy uh, that doesn't always show up in the documentary footage just because of the you know the, the film camera and the sound person probably um, Gray was just there with his camera but he seems to have caught them in these very very beautiful um, positions if if you have the chance go online and and search B-I-L-L-E-T. Search for his other loving photographs. They're, they're really beautiful. And of course, one of the most famous ones, and the first one that I saw, uh, inspired this scene. It really is one of my favorite scenes in the whole film. I think there's something about when you're watching a movie and you see characters smile and laughing on screen. It's just infectious. But this photograph, which we'll come back at the end of the film, is, uh, it just says everything to me. Because as soon as you look at it, you see that, well, this period is in the 50s or the 60s. This is a black woman and a white man. Uh, he looks, you know, like a working class guy in his boots. But also they're, they're very happy together. It kind of, in one image, captures the complexity of the situation of the Lovings. Um, so it was important for me to build the scene and a great reason to have the Andy Griffith show in the movie. So this is a stand-in for the exterior of the Virginia State Supreme Court, which is in Richmond, but this is actually in Hopewell, Virginia, but it's pretty darn close, um, to the exterior of the Virginia State Supreme Court. Um, Hopewell is this amazing town outside of Richmond that just, somebody just hit pause and didn't mess with anything. And you get these great buildings, um, such as that Butterworth's building behind the reporter's head. I mean, that's all there. We didn't, we didn't do that, you know? And once we brought in the cars and had the extras on the street, um, you know, there, there was really not too much else to do. Um, I'm sure Chad Keith, my production designer, has a list of ways to disagree with me. But, uh, but it's a really cool town, and, and we're really lucky that we found it and that it existed, and they let us shoot there. So this scene is, is almost identically crafted off of some newsreel footage um, that we had access to. These lines taken uh, almost verbatim, especially the portion where uh, you just saw of Richard and Mildred speaking to the reporter, down to the reporter saying, cut, Tommy. Um, we, we really prided ourselves on it. And that, again, I mentioned it earlier, but Aaron Binnick, I believe, made that coat uh, okay. for Mildred to wear. That resembled the coat she had in the news footage. Thank you, gentlemen. You know they aren't going back to Washington. One of the few handheld scenes in the There's film, no but it felt like it was appropriate to, to represent the kind of idea of this news footage and how hectic this situation was. So now here's an example of a scene that I, you know, I have no proof that this happened, this idea that Richard finds this brick in his car. But I needed a moment in the back half of the film that represented this threat, you know, this this idea that they, they just never get to relax. They never get to just ease into being at home or being comfortable. And I thought, and again, I have no proof for it, but I thought certainly if Life magazine you know, publishes photos of you, it's got to come back to haunt you in this situation. It's got to have an impact at some point. So I developed this scene, again, because I I didn't have any specific examples of 
a cross being burned or, or bricks being thrown through windows or, or anything like that, even though it may have happened. You know, I'm sure the Lovings dealt with a lot more harrowing events than I knew about or could even imagine. But because I didn't know about them specifically, I didn't just want to create stuff willy-nilly. So I, I, I just kind of created this scene that was is really about the anxiety and the, the fear more than the specifics, you know? Because maybe this truck's coming after him, maybe it's not. We never find out, but it doesn't really matter because it could have, and, and that's the point, you know? Richard thinks that it's all about where Richard's at in his head and where Mildred's at in hers. This was a tough day. This was the hardest day of the shoot. It was kind of rainy. We were running out of light. We didn't have a process trailer for this. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, just filmmaker stuff, but it was a it was a bit of a pain. So the first take of this shot, Joel comes flying down this road, hits the brakes and the car nearly skidded into the camera right here. So this is the second take. I think our AC, Dave Reagan, leapt off the camera. It's always Dave. Dave's the one that's always in harm's way, it feels like. Sorry, Dave. I want you to go next door to the neighbor. You're gonna ask me to telephone, you're gonna call Raymond, ask him to bring his gun, right? Go, go on out, run through the wood, go on. Everything okay? It's fine. Richard? Go on inside. But again, just this idea of what could be coming up that road. We never see anything, but just the idea of what could be coming up that road really struck me. And also, and this is going to sound very, I don't know what the word is, but maybe meaningless, but this also begins a very small subplot of the Lovings getting a phone, mainly because I knew at the end of the film Mildred would get a phone call to tell her about the um, the final result of the Supreme Court verdict. And for some reason I wanted to um, have them completely isolated when they were first in hiding, so being in a home with no phone but then I realized I needed a phone installed. So um, as unimportant as that seems, <laughs> these are things you think about as a writer. And again, this is Alana Miller. Who, I don't know if, if a scene like this ever happened, but Raymond, as he's interviewed in the documentary and from the outtakes that I was able to watch, he just seems like a real friend, you know? He seems like someone... That was really important to them. You're all set. Thank you. And voila, you have a phone. I don't want you calling anybody. That's the entire purpose for this scene, but I thought, well, okay, I need to show a phone being installed, but also I want to re-enter the family so that you know, even though they're in a neighboring county, um, they're nearby and they're close, and you get the sense that this isn't the first time they've seen each other since they've been back, that this is something that happens somewhat more frequently. So you're kind of 
doubling up on information there. Now, this is another one of those kind of uncanny scenes. If you can go look at the real footage that we based it on, I mean, you know, I remember we were filming Ruth in this scene, and Adam Stone, my cinematographer, just looked over at me and just mouthed the word, wow, after one of her takes, because, I mean, it is nearly identical, uh, the way she speaks in her body language and everything else to the to the archival footage well but also i i thought about what was happening just off the edges of this archival footage you know the pressure that that they must have felt and kind of the invasion that richard probably felt from from all of this again i have no idea if it happened that way probably didn't but it felt like an interesting idea to explore so that it's not that i went way far away from from the things in in the archive footage i just went just off the edge of the frame that maybe a conversation happened like this just off the edge of frame i don't want those people here i'm done with all these cameras well i think it's important these people want to and now here you see mildred really you know taking hold of her position in this fight not with Richard, meaning this fight against their situation and their legal struggles. And starting to hint to this idea of her place and their place in this bigger struggle of the civil rights movement. Obviously, you know, they didn't go to the marches, they didn't pick up signs, but the impact they had was extraordinarily important. I mean, we're talking massive change, but she did it her way, which I think is a very quiet, elegant way. Yes. Meanwhile... Richard's left to so. squirm on, under the it's presence of cameras. It's a law. I don't think it's right. And if if we do win, we will be helping a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I knew, I know we have some enemies, but we have some friends too. So it really don't make a difference about my enemies. Back to the drag races, but you know, you start to see this shift between he and his friends. You know, this starts to highlight just kind of how unconventional this film is, and I don't always say that as a positive. Um, it's just a really strange narrative structure because you're dealing with so much time. It's not a film that builds to a typical climax or anything that you learn in screenwriting class about three act structure. It's really just about time and the weight of time and these scenes that add up to the eventual effect on the audience, but also on the characters. And this is one more moment, you know. There's a great part in the archival footage where someone just asks Richard if he'll divorce Mildred. He said, I won't divorce her. I won't divorce her. And that's kind of became the inspiration of this scene. Someone just challenging him, like, why don't you just step out of all this? You're white, you could just step out of all this. But it also says a lot more than that. What you got? See, you just went and made it hard now. Now, no, you, th- you think I'm crazy, but, but you know what hard is now, don't you? Yeah. I mean, if you look at this character, he's just representative of, of people that are 
uncomfortable being themselves. Because of all the hardships in society, perhaps, I don't know. But this is a, it's a very interesting character in my mind. Now you know what it feels like now, don't you? You black names. What damn I can't understand why, why a man wouldn't take the privilege that he's afforded by his race. Wish they were you rich. And you ain't got sense enough for it. You got a fix. I ain't got no fix. See, your one is easy. All you got to do is divorce her. I think that was also kind of inspired by this idea of Central Point and Passing Road, and that you would have some people that were so light-skinned that they would, they would leave and live completely different lives in other parts of the country, passing for white. Just the, the shamefulness of anyone feeling they needed to pass as another race. I was really struck by that. And then this song... It's a song by Magic Sam called My Love Will Never Die. And I think it's one of the greatest songs ever written. I've been listening to this song since high school, just waiting for a chance to put it into a film. And I knew I wanted to do this slow pushing on Joel's face with this song blaring. It's one of my happiest moments as a filmmaker. So like I was saying earlier about, you know, narrative structure, and how kind of unconventional this is. There is no real big climax in a traditional sense in this film. But instead you have this scene. And this scene isn't an emotional climax in my mind. When I was doing research for the film, I found this quote from Mildred Loving, which you'll see at the end of the film, which she was talking about Richard saying, I miss him, he took care of me. And that just, that just punched me in the gut. And I was thinking about how emasculated Richard must have felt not being able to do the, the, the one thing that he actually could do, which was work every day and take care of his family. And, um, and so then after that quote, I reverse engineered this scene. Despite the fact that she says he took care of me, we know at this point they take care of each other. They need each other. And where she was crying on his shoulder earlier in D.C., now you have this. I know that. I can take care of you. very little direction in this scene. Actually, none. I just sat, I was sitting on the ground up by the edge of the bed, and I think everybody was in tears by the end of it. So this is a shot I dreamed about for a long time. And it goes back to what I spoke about earlier in terms of these transitions of seasons. You don't know that exactly how much time has passed, but you just get the, the feeling of time. So this is all fake snow on the ground which is really slippery, actually. So Joel's trying his best not to fall. And then the mill, our effects company, replaced the whole background with that tree line and snow. But all of the foreground is, is fake snow. And uh, I thought they did a really great job. I thought that was a pretty successful effect. 
and really important to just kind of see how, again, time is just constantly working on these people in their situation. It's very good. Well, I have some really terrific news. This is one of the biggest scenes in the film and leading up to one of the biggest lines in the film. When looking into research about the case and I was just struck by this question of, well, now, how does the state of Virginia defend this? And I wanted to put that question in Richard's mouth, mainly so we could get the answer. You know, Phil Hirschkopf talks about it in the documentary, but... Um, this idea that it's unfair to, to mixed-race children to be brought into the world. Uh, the, the fact that that was the state of Virginia's defense is, is just, it's so absurd, and it's so painful. And, um, and it just had to have it represented here, and how that must have struck them. Okay. The state of Virginia will and of course, the same kind of pseudoscience is applied today when we talk about issues of marriage equality. People come up with all these different reasons for why gay people shouldn't be married, and I find them equally as absurd, and I think history will bear that out. Now, as the defendants in this trial, you are allowed to come and hear the arguments. Nope. We don't need to do that. It's a tremendous honor to sit with the Supreme Court. Very few people... No. I think this is when Joel is just firing on all cylinders. Excuse me. I love him in this scene. Everybody's doing great, but, but Joel just especially struck me in that scene. Now, we're coming up to one of the most important lines in the history of the, the Lovings case. Bernie Cohen mentions this line in his oral arguments in front of the Supreme Court. He speaks about it in the documentary. It's a line that, you know, who knows how it came out of Richard's mouth or, or what. It doesn't really matter because it, it so beautifully sums up Richard and the situation and the simplicity at the heart of it. I gave Joel two takes. He you did know, this on the second take. It's up to you not to attend, but and um, and it was perfect, so we just stopped. Plus, we were running out of light. 400 cases. It's historic. We did two takes in the medium and two takes in the close-up. Thank you, Mr. Cool. And you're about to see the second take of the close-up. Is there anything you'd like me to say to them? And it was just perfect. And by them, I mean the Supreme Court Justices of the United States? Yeah. And tell the judge. Tell the judge I love my wife. When uh, we played this film at the Toronto Film Festival, it was a massive theater, and you could hear a pin drop right now. Really a great experience. 
And again, now, the seasons are changing. Time's passing. This was an amazing location, kind of at the uh, center of Richmond. Now, this was actually filmed in Richmond. These, the, this is the front of the Supreme Court. But we actually sent our camera crew to D.C. to shoot the Supreme Court. The problem is we weren't allowed to close down the steps. But we showed up early in the morning, and those are, are some extras we brought and just threw them out there. And it just happened we caught that one shot without anyone walking by because we wouldn't have been allowed to tell somebody to get out of the frame or anything else. So it was tricky getting that shot, but we got it. Mr. Hirschkopf. Now that's Chief Justice Warren. These are, these are actual audio recordings from the oral arguments that I then blended with our actors. Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices, may please accord. I listened to those oral arguments several times and it, it was just hard not to you have try and utilize them in some way. What we consider the most odious of the segregation laws and the slavery laws. And this is taken directly from Phil Hirschkopf's oral arguments and, and this just gets to the heart of it. Is that this is a slavery law. It was on their shoulders to prove that, that these weren't just criminal laws and this wasn't just a, a criminal idea, but that, that they were rooted in slavery, they were rooted in prejudice. And that's so important because if, if they agree with them on that fact, then they really can apply the 14th Amendment and equal protection under the law. And many, many rights. Mr. Cohen. And the same for Bernie's comments, taken directly from the oral arguments. What is the danger to the state of Virginia? And it's such a perfect question, I think. What's the danger? Who are we bothering here? Here's this couple. They're just trying to have dinner. The state of danger to the people. And really, what, what are they doing to you? It seemed to just cut to the heart of the thing. Is a fundamental right. You have those low notes in David Wingo's score. You know, he just showed up one day and he played this for me. He's like, I didn't think you'd like it very much, but how could you listen to this and not like it? Like, the lovings are just very emotional, but very simple all at the same time. This might be one of my favorite shots in the film. Everything's kind of worked out perfectly. The lighting and then... Ruth looks up right there, right before she closes the door. That's an actress that is very aware of what she's doing. So when I was watching the documentary, Bernie recounts kind of the, the joyous moment of finding out about the Supreme Court decision. And it's a really great part of the doc. You know, you can't help but smile and, and feel all the joy that Bernie's feeling. But when he's done recounting it, Nancy, the documentary filmmaker off screen, asks where he play like, well, how did, do you remember how you told the Lovings? And he said, oh, I think we called him on the phone. And I was just struck by that. I said, well, what was that phone call like? How did that go down? I have no idea if it actually happened like this, but this is the way I imagined it. Oh, hello, Mr. Cohen. What's that? We purposely made it hard to understand exactly what they were saying. You get it but I really just wanted people focused on Ruth. 
and on what's happening in her face. Yes, I'm here. And when you have an actress of this caliber, you can do that. It's wonderful news. Yes, I understand. There's so much going on there. And we just did a slow push in. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Cohn. But her life just changed. Just a phone call. I feel like this is where, in lieu of, you know, big Supreme Court speeches or anything like that, if you've stuck with us, if you've been watching this film, the cumulative effect of what these people have been going through in their day-to-day -day lives, this is when it just starts to land for you. That was the hope, at least. And then we recreated this press conference, I mean, down to the books behind their heads. Of course, they spoke in this press conference, but this was just so much more important to me, I think. The looks on their faces. Richard had tears in his eyes. So this is when this motif really starts to pay off. Obviously, this is what he's been doing through the whole film, but now he gets to do it on his own home. Take that to your dad. And that is true. You can actually go to Central Point and you can see the the home that, that Richard built for Mildred. It now has vinyl siding on it, but uh, it's there. Just like Richard, it's very simple. This is one of those days where, as a filmmaker, things just go your way. We actually, on the day we were originally scheduled to shoot this scene and the original scene where he proposes to her in this exact same spot, it was overcast. And my AD, Cass, she kind of moved heaven and earth and moved our schedule around all week so that we could shoot this on a prettier day. And, uh, and we were there shooting this in the afternoon. And again, it's just one of those times as a filmmaker, things just work for you. Because I've been dreaming about the end shot of this movie for a very long time. Again in Toronto, we played the film. This next fact came up and there was an audible gasp. And I feel the exact same way. I mean, it's just a punch in the stomach. The documentary ends with this next fact, but that didn't seem like enough to me didn't seem complete enough. And that's when I found this quote from Mildred and I felt like that, that's what I wanted people to remember. Not the fact that he died or that she died, but the fact that they took care of each other. That's just what I wanted the film to be about. we have Gravelet's photo here that kind of started it all for me. So that's the real Richard and Mildred. 
All right. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed the film. Outcast love, but it's enough for me. It's enough for me. I won't let them keep us apart. Cause love can't be bound by chains. They might come for us in the dark, but it's enough to stay. It's enough to stay. I can tell them that I love you I can prove my heart is true That might not be good enough for them But I just want to be good enough for you Remember how it felt the first night This love we can't afford to lose I'll take care of you the rest of my days If that's enough for you That's enough for you I can tell them that I love you I can prove my heart is true And that might not be good enough for them But I just want to be good enough for you Good enough for you. Just wanna be good enough for you.